Good morning. Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. I want to thank uh, Terry and Dee for the uh, illustrations they supplied for my sermon this morning. This morning we're going to be discussing a part of the mission statement about community interaction. And this has to do with our service and involvement in the community outside of Cole Community Church. I'll just read part of that objective. We want to give our time, money, energy, and other resources to other churches, ministries, and organizations in the local and global community. We desire to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, to be salt and light in our community, and have a positive influence on our culture. That is, we want to give ourselves away, we want to give our, uh, our time, our gifts, our money, in order to serve others and to reach out to others. We want to hear more often what the old lawyer said of John Vianney, an extraordinary thing happened to me today. I saw Christ in a man. And we want to have that Christian distinctiveness known, uh, we want to be known for that Christian distinctiveness that we are salt and light in our community. Luke 16 is a parable that reminds us of our Christian distinctiveness with respect to money. It contrasts the Christian perspective on money with the secular perspective on money. Chuck Colson has said, underlying the political conflicts that blare from the headlines is a deeper conflict between two worldviews, the secular worldview and the Christian worldview. Today's parable contrasts these two opposing views by showing their perspectives on wealth. And it draws us to the question of what is money good for? The parable in Luke 16 today is one of the most difficult of the synoptic parables. It's difficult for two reasons. One is that Jesus tells us to follow the example of a dishonest manager. And second, Jesus tells us to gain friends by the means of money. Now, these seem to be inconsistencies with Jesus' other teachings. So after a casual reading of this passage, we may come away with the same feeling that David Roper has about succotash. He, he likes the uh, corn, but he, he doesn't like the lima beans. And so I think after we take a closer look at this passage, we'll be able to figure out what those inconsistencies are and, and to really deal with those and to pick out the lima beans of this passage. Uh, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. That's the parable itself. <clears throat> now he... Who he was saying to the disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called to him and said, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking away the stewardship from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill, and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. Now, this is the parable, and my interpretation of the parable is what I feel best fits the scriptural context as well as the cultural and historical context. 
However, I will qualify that by saying there are other viable interpretations. But I think that the important thing to realize here is even though there are differences in the interpretations of this, uh, the details of this parable, that indeed uh, Jesus is drawing us to the same application or lesson for our lives. And that's the most important thing. How is it that Scripture draws us closer to the Lord? How is Scripture make us uh, a person that is more reflective of the character of Jesus? Now, this uh, parable starts out with a master. This is a landowner of a large estate. He rents out this land to a variety of different renters. And he's apparently an honest and upright man as opposed to the steward, which is deliberately labeled as unrighteous in verse 8. Now, the master has given the steward the authority to manage his estate, to manage his land. And the steward has received a salary and then also receives fees from these various renters of the land. And these renters essentially pay back a fixed portion of produce at the end of a year back to the master. So they rent land and then a fixed amount of produce is determined as their rent and then whatever is above that is what they make their living on. The steward is likely, in this process, is likely taking extras under the table. He's doing so in a manner that's extra, uh, that's above what is customary for that time. And in doing so, he is wasting the manager's uh, or the master's possessions. He's accused of wasting the master's possessions in verse 2. We see the master starts out by saying, What is this I hear about you? Now, the Greek verb that's used here is in the the imperfect tense, and it implies the the statement, I have been hearing for quite some time, and I continue to hear a steady stream of things about you. So the squandering is not something that is just a one-time thing, but this uh, steward has made a practice of squandering the master's possessions. Squandering in Greek here invokes the image of a farmer reaching into his bag and throwing up seeds. So this is the image we have of the steward wasting the possessions of this master. Now the hammer falls in verse 2. The steward gets fired, and we see in verse 3 that the steward acts as though he's not yet been fired. He says, my master is taking away my job, as though the firing is imminent but has not yet taken place. But in verse 2, we read that the master uses the present tense, you can no longer be steward. So this discrepancy is easily cleared by understanding that indeed the authority of this steward has been stripped away from him. He has been fired, but the steward has room to maneuver. There's no email, there's no faxes, there's no way to get this out to the community very quickly and to the, the debtors. And so these, these debtors don't know about what's gone on. So the, the steward has some room to maneuver. And the fact that he has been fired on the spot can, can be seen in verse 2 when, he, when the master says, give an account of your stewardship. Give an account does not imply to get your books in order, but rather to surrender your books. So in essence, the, manager has, the master has said to the steward, you're fired, turn in your books. The response of the steward is silence. That's a very significant response in an Eastern culture. It's to imply I'm guilty, the master knows it, and there's no amount of maneuvering that's going to get my job back. But as we see from the conversation that the steward has with himself, you see he contemplates digging and he contemplates begging. 
we see that the steward's problem is not just his next meal. He's looking for a sustainable job. He's looking for some way to take care of his future. Now, how is he going to do that? I mean, after all, his resume is not going to look so hot now. He's just been fired. Well, we see in verse 4 that he has a plan. And like a good novel, we're not told what that plan is, but we have to kind of watch it unfold. And this begins to unfold in verse 5 when he summons the master's debtors. Note here that the debts involved by these debtors are not insignificant. The first debtor owns 100 measures of olive oil. That would be equivalent to 800 gallons of olive oil requiring 450 trees. The second has 100 measures of wheat, which is equivalent to 1,000 bushels of wheat requiring 100 acres of land to produce. So the debtors (coughs) come to the steward under the assumption that the steward still has the authority to call them. And the steward calls them in one by one so that these debtors will not collaborate and they will not tell the master so that the story doesn't get out. The steward's in a hurry here. We see in verse 6 and 7. We see in verse 6, he says, sit down quickly. And in verse 7, he says, and how much do you owe? There's an omission of title here that in the Eastern culture is very significant. He's in a hurry. There's no time for protocol. So he's going to get the the job done before the master finds out what's going on. Now, if the debtors knew about this scheme, they would not cooperate. They would not cooperate, for one, because of the value of the relationship between renters and landlords during that time. We see from the rabbinical parables that that's a very important thing. Secondly is they wouldn't cooperate because they they would know that it would jeopardize their future potential to rent that land and to thus make a living from that land. And so if these debtors knew that uh, this steward was scheming, they would not cooperate with the steward. But the debtors or the renters of this land do not know about this scheme. And therefore we see in verses 6 and 7 that the debtors agreed to make these changes in their debts in their own handwriting. Now, the borrowers believed that this master had authorized the debt reduction because the steward persuaded that master to do so. This is a key in understanding this parable because the steward needs to receive credit for this plan in order to receive favor from the debtors. If the steward is perceived as being someone who's looking after the interest of these debtors, the debtors are apt to give him a job when he's then fired. Then the last part of the plan is that the steward tells the master what has taken place. Now, the master can no doubt envision great celebration going on in the surrounding villages. Here we've got debtors who now have reduced debts and they're they're celebrating the generosity of this master. And at this point, the master has two options. One is to go to the debtors and say, hey, this is all a mistake. Uh, I'm really not that generous. But there goes his honor, there goes his reputation for generosity, something very significant in the Eastern culture. Or his second option is to just keep silent and accept the praise for his generosity. And he decides to do that. Then he praises the steward for his shrewdness. He commends the steward for his shrewdness. End of parable. Kind of a strange parable. What does Jesus mean? By this parable, what is he teaching us from this parable? 
Well, there's uh, many different uh, lessons that people draw from this parable. Some think it's a lesson on honesty. Some think it's about the judgment and mercy of God. Some think it's just about the uh, law and usury and the Mosaic law. But what is Jesus' explanation? We see in verse 14 that it has something to do with money. It says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. But what does the parable have to do with money? The key to understanding this parable centers around the word shrewd in verse 8. That word shrewd, it comes from the Hebrew word hokmah or wisdom. And it means essentially in this context a non-moral cleverness and skill deployed in self-preservation. So the steward is being clever, he's being wise and intelligent and thoughtful as to how he's going to secure his future. But we need to note in verse 8 that the steward is not being commended for his dishonesty. He's being commended for his shrewdness. So Jesus is not asking us to emulate the dishonesty of the steward. He's asking us to emulate the shrewdness of the steward. Now just how was his steward shrewd? His shrewdness lay in the fact that he was willing to jeopardize his present security in order to secure his future security. He had the foresight to see that his present security was going to fail him anyway. So it's this kind of shrewdness that Jesus is asking us to emulate. But in what way are we to emulate this steward's shrewdness? How do we flesh out this shrewdness in our own lives? Well, Jesus begins this explanation at the latter part of verse 8. He first tells us something about ourselves. He says, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. Now, the sons of this age I take to mean people who are a product of this age, those who hold a secular worldview and view this existence as ending in death. The sons of light, I take it to be believers or Christians, those who hold a very different worldview. The sons of light realize that their existence goes beyond death, that they're playing for higher stakes, they're playing for eternity. Now, given these two different worldviews, Jesus says, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. The sons of this age, or secular man, are more shrewd in light of the fact that their horizons are bounded by 70 years. So in light of that future, the sons of this age are shrewd with the money they have. They're wise with money. Ted Turner, I think, captures the notion of this when he says, life is a bunch of years between the cradle and the grave. You might as well be as successful as you can in the meantime. But the sons of light have a very different future. Their future is the future of eternity. They tend to be unwise, tend to be simplistic and naive about money. In light of the eternal future, we as Christians tend not to use our money wisely. And that's what Jesus is getting at. So how is it that we can be wise with money? How is it? Does Jesus leave us hanging? How is it we can be wise with money? Jesus answers this directly in verse 9. And I say to you, Make friends by the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is asking us to emulate the steward by using money to make friends for the future, just as the steward has used money, or these debts in this case, to secure his own future. 
The difference is, is that the steward has a future that is confined to this age. He's very much concerned for his immediate existence. He's very much attached to this world. And with that perspective on life, the steward is acting very shrewdly with his money. In contrast, however, we as the sons of light have an eternal future and we need to use money for that eternal future. Now, on a superficial reading of this, you might say Jesus is saying, well, we need to use our money to buy off people so that when they get to heaven, they'll put in a good word for us. That's theologically absurd, of course, and that's not what's being said here. We really see from the context that we need to use our money to please God. We need to use our money for eternal things, for the kingdom of God. But what is pleasing to God? Well, in response to God's love for us, which is the wellspring for our love for others, in response to that, he's saying we can use our money to commit acts of righteousness, kindness, compassion, and mercy to reach out to others to show them the unfailing love of God, to reach out to our local and global community and show them the love of God. That is what money is good for. In short, we can use our money to make friends for eternity to promote our own eternal well-being. We have sent many out from this body uh, for short-term missions as well as uh, we've sent out field staff to a lot of different places in the world. And as we do so, we are making friends throughout the world. We can ask our field staff as they come home. People like Clark Petticourt two weeks ago just came home. Steve and Peggy Coe have come home. Raynette Blessing is here. We can ask them about their ministries and begin to understand a little bit about the friends that we've made by supporting those ministries. Now, as these ministries of the field staff reach out to a hurting world by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, by training nationals, planning churches, enabling and helping the poor, we who are supporting these ministries through prayer and finances and encouragement we are gaining eternal friends. It's a really beautiful picture that, that Jesus gives us here about how if we're faithful with our money, if we use our money for this, we will be welcomed into heaven uh, by the friends that we've made from that. We can really uh, begin to, to get in touch with the needs of our field staff and missionaries by praying through the missions prayer calendar. A little plug for the missions prayer calendar. But it comes out every month the last week of every month for the following month. And it gives a day-by-day prayer that we can go through and begin to learn about the needs of this world and the needs of our field staff that we have sent from our body to reach this world. Last week, I went to the congregational meeting, and during that meeting, I was very impressed just by some of the comments about how we can reflect on the gifts that we have and we can begin to use those gifts during this time of transition. As David is, uh, is retiring and we're going through a period of transition, we can begin to look at the gifts we have in this body to see how we can reach out to others and to serve others in our local community. And then Terry and Dee Bauer have just uh, shared something that is a very practical avenue, loving talent tithe, for us to, to offer our time and money. But as we use our money, as we use our gifts to reach out to our neighbors, our co-workers, our schoolmates, we are using money to gain eternal friends. Now, in verse 9, this term money is very interesting. Jesus uses the term mammon of unrighteousness. Mammon is an Aramaic term referring to money or wealth, but Jesus qualifies this noun with an adjective. 
unrighteousness. There is an implicit warning here that money has an inherent ability to draw us away from God. That's why there are so many warnings that we see in the New Testament as well as the Old about money. In 1 Timothy 6.9 we read, People who want to get rich fall into a foolish temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into destruction. In a book called The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes of uh, a letter that the devil, Screwtape, writes to his apprentice devil, Wormwood. And Screwtape writes, writes this to Wormwood. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding his place, its place in him, building up in him a sense of being at home at earth, which is just what we want. Polls reveal that making money has become the dominant aspirations of students entering college. In a recent survey of 10,000 students in New Jersey, 89% of those students wanted to become wealthy. 11% wanted positions of power, and no one indicated that they wanted to be holy. The thrust of Jesus' message here is to use money, which is Satan's tool, the mammon of unrighteousness, for the kingdom of God. Turn the tables on Satan... Use money to commit acts of compassion and mercy and to reach out to others with the unfailing love of God, with the hope that Jesus Christ gives us. Jesus said in Luke 12, Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. In verse 9, Jesus asks us to use the mammon of unrighteousness that when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, when does money fail us? Money fails us when we die. I have a cousin who's a mortician, and he has told me that the suits for burial have no pockets. Chuck Swindoll is fond of saying, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. This is the idea. Money has a very temporal use. We have the opportunity to use it now before it fails us. Years back, I had a friend, a Christian brother, who articulated his life's dream as amassing wealth. And then when he died, he would take this wealth and he'd give it to the church. Two years after Laura and I moved to Indonesia, I found out that this friend had died of a heart attack. The Lord is reminding us that money has a very temporal use. We can use it now, but it will fail us. There was a a news... Uh, on the radio a few years back about a lady in West Palm Beach, Florida who died and she was 71 when she died and the coroner's report said that the cause of death was malnutrition. She had withered down to 50 pounds. She was found in a shack that the inspector said was in the most abhorrent condition that he had ever seen. She had begged food and clothes from her neighbors and after she died they found two safety deposit box keys. And in those safety deposit boxes, they found over a million dollars worth of securities and cash. Now is the opportunity, Jesus says, to use money because it will fail us. Now, money also serves as kind of a barometer to our faithfulness to God. We see this very clearly in verses 10 through 12. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. 
If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? First note that the possessions that we've been entrusted with, the gifts that we've been entrusted with, are not really ours in the first place. We read in Psalm 50 that God says, For the world is mine and all it contains. Don Richardson was here a few weeks ago and he gave a seminar and he really emphasized the covenant that God had given to Abraham. And in that covenant, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And he goes on to say, so that you can be a blessing to others. God blesses us in order to be a blessing to others. That's what blessings are for. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this, am I faithful with the wealth that God has given me? Am I using the resources God has given me to make friends for eternity? Am I using the blessings that God has given me to be a blessing to others? The answer to this question is the basis by which God determines whether or not He will entrust us with true riches. Now, I take from the context here that true riches mean eternal things or the the things of the kingdom. There are only two things that survive our existence. One is character, and one is people. As we're faithful with money, God will entrust us more and more with his character. We'll become more and more like Jesus, less dull to the needs of others. As we're faithful with money, God will entrust us with more and more people, because people become the object of our service. Money becomes a tool by which we serve people, and more and more people will be drawn to us. There is going to be uh, two short-term mission teams that are going out this next summer. One team will be going out to China, a team of four people. There's going to be a team of 14 people going out to Irian Jaya, Indonesia. And this is just a real neat opportunity for us to reach out to people in distant lands and to make friends in distant lands for eternity by uh, supporting these teams with prayer and uh, finances. And by doing that, we will be gaining eternal friends that we may not know on this side of heaven. I think this is just a great picture that God gives us of how we can use money. Now, the last thing Jesus says is in verse 13, and I'll read that. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus is saying to us here, we need to make a choice. There's no middle ground. We need to choose between God or money. There's no such thing as financial freedom. We are slaves no matter what. We're slaves to either things or we're slaves to God. The reason we must choose is because one will draw us away from the other. Richard Foster said in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, he he says this, Do we buy a particular home on the basis of the call of God or because of the availability of money? Do we buy a new car because we can afford it or because God instructed us to buy a new car? If money determines what we do or do not do, then money is our boss. If God determines what we do or do not do, then God is our boss. Money might say to me, you have enough to buy that. But God might say to me, I don't want you to have it. Who am I to obey? Brennan Manning said in the book, The Signature of Jesus, that the church in American society today is of necessity 
a community of resistance to the gods of modern life, one of those being money. We in the States live in two different worlds. One of those worlds is materially very blessed. As a nation, we make up 6% of the world's population and control over a third of the world's wealth. We are very blessed as a nation. Even many of the uh, poor, the, the considered officially poor in the United States, would be considered very rich in a third world country. If you look at the officially poor in the United States, 38% own their own homes, 60% own their own cars. That constitutes great wealth in most third world countries. The second world we live in is a very hostile and hurting world. It's a world where one out of every five people are so poor that their survival is at stake. It's a world where 100 million children are exploited for their slave labor. And it's a world where 1.3 billion people have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. The contrast between these two worlds were graphically portrayed to me when Laura and I moved to Indonesia. And we saw the poverty there. It's a country that's 90% Muslim. And in that context, I was teaching at a Christian university. And one of my students, Sumari, who was also one of the disciples, my disciples in a, in a Bible study group, he um, suddenly died uh, because he could not have access to affordable diagnosis and treatment for something that would have simply been treated here in the United States. Another student of mine had a son whose name was Mesak. He fell into a burning garbage pit and he suffered third-degree burns on his legs and his feet and he was rushed to the Jokja Hospital. It was a life-threatening situation, but because the hospital knew that this little Irianese boy could not afford the hospital, he was turned away. Being from a nation that has been so materially blessed, we need to ask ourselves, are we being faithful with the money that God has entrusted us? Are we being shrewd with the money that God has entrusted us to make eternal friends? There was such an outpouring of love from the Christian community when they heard of Mesak's situation. Within hours, he was sent to a hospital five hours from Jogjakarta to a Baptist hospital in the town of Kadiri. And it was, he was there for over six months in rehabilitation and had undergone many surgeries. But it was in Kadiri that I met up with Mesak and his father. Laura and I were there awaiting the birth of our son Luke. And it was there I learned of their story. And um, Mesak's father had told me of this outpouring of Christian love where their medical bills were paid. The, ho- the doctor at the hospital had donated all of his surgeries, had donated all of the rehabilitation time and all of his sessions with Mesak in order to, to bring Mesak to health. As we use our money and we commit, mercies, uh, commit acts of mercy and love and compassion and reach out to people this way, we are making eternal friends. There is a doctor and his wife who is a nurse here from our own body who have used their time and talents and gifts and money to reach those in Somalia in a time of great human tragedy. We need to realize here that Jesus' message is not to make life bleak or hard or oppressive, but on the contrary, Jesus is giving us the secret to life. He's reminding us that God is faithful. Only God can fill our longing and our ache. And only God can satisfy. Ultimately, money will fail us. So why not use money 
to be shrewd with money, be wise with money, that which will fail us anyway, to make eternal dividends, to make friends for eternity, to reach out to our local and global community by committing acts of compassion and kindness. Let's pray.